We're going to be in a few different passages this morning. So if you have your Bible, uh, will you turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians? It's in the New Testament about halfway through. Um, the other place you want to keep your finger on is in Genesis 15. All right, so maybe you want to just dog ear that one. It's way back at the beginning of the Bible. Start at the beginning, count 15 chapters forward, you'll be there. Okay? Um, this morning, because it's Father's Day, I, I figured it would be appropriate to talk about fatherhood. Um, but today's not going to be one of those typical fatherhood ones where the preacher stands up at front and says, here's how you be a good dad. You're being a terrible dad and you feel bad when you leave and you try to go harder. All right, that's not what I'm going to do today. I, I want to come at it from a little different angle because uh, I think we have a great example of fatherhood in the Bible. It's really, really clear and it's really encouraging. So first, though, I want to give you a good example of fatherhood that you can look at. Someone in this room got an excellent Father's Day uh, present, and I want him to show it off for you. So, Eric, will you stand up? Uh, That's a great Father's Day shirt. I I love that. If you haven't seen The Incredibles by Pixar, you should definitely see it. There's a guy wearing that shirt almost the entire movie. It's awesome. Okay. so t- today the, the message is called Covenant Daddy, because I think that God is our daddy. Um, and I think we can see that both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And uh, I hope to show you that not only is God your daddy, but that when you read the Bible, you can see a very clear picture of how the Bible really fits together, really like a, like a puzzle. And you need all the different pieces, and it tells a long story about our relationship as children with our daddy and how it's, it's really rocky, and yet our daddy is great, and he is very powerful, and he's a good example. So we're going to start in, in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. Now, uh, that might be kind of hard to see. I'm, I'm sorry. It's my fault. Um, I made that PowerPoint presentation slide. Um, but let me give you some intro a little bit so you understand what Paul, the author of this book, is talking about. Um, he wrote this letter to a group of churches in what's now Turkey, uh, in the middle of that country. And they were supposed to take this letter and they were supposed to pass it around from church to church. And I assume what they did was they stood up in the front and they read this letter to the people. And now there was a problem. Paul went and planted most of these churches and then he left. And after he came, another group of teachers came from Jerusalem and sort of muddied his teaching a little bit and started teaching some things that got him really concerned. In fact, if you read this letter, he uses the word fool a lot. Uh, He uses the word cursed. He is really, really concerned. He's really uh, angry a bit about how the misconception these guys were spreading. And it was confusing the Christians at his, in his churches that he founded. Now, the problem was these people were teaching that, yes, you need to ask Jesus to save you so that you can be part of his family and be saved and go to heaven and have all the life and, and peace and, and all those things that God promises through Jesus. But these guys were coming along and saying, yes, but it's Jesus plus keeping traditions and laws and certain ceremonies. And so basically they were trying to convince these, this mixed group of Christians, some of whom were Jewish and some of whom were Gentiles, that everybody had to be a Jew, Jewish person first, and then they had to become a Christian after that. And so there's certain prerequisites in there that Jesus didn't put in there, and neither did Paul. And so when, when Paul comes, comes, comes to know about this, he writes this letter, and he spends the entire letter uh, in many different ways trying to um, convince the Galatians that actually all Christians, Jewish or Gentile, are all in the same family. 
and you get into the family by faith in Jesus. And that's all. Ceremonies are fine. Uh, Traditions are fine. But you don't, they don't, they're not a prerequisite in order to have faith in Jesus. They, they kind of show us pictures of things. And so here's, this is really relevant to us today because some of you were brought up in church like I was. And um, maybe you were of the opinion at one time that if I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray and, you know, if I'm a good person and keep the Ten Commandments and then God will like me and he'll let me into his family. Um, then there's the other group of people maybe that's in this room that says, you know, God is too restrictive and therefore I'm not going to follow that stuff. You know, I can I can go fishing and, and, and believe in God or, or whatever. Um, or maybe you're a hybrid between those two. Maybe there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that kind of mixed into your spirituality. Uh, I, I was there. Uh, I think most of us who follow Jesus have been at one point or another. And that's why Galatians is really, really relevant. So I encourage you, if you, don't, if you haven't read it already, to, to pick it up this week and read it. It's, it's a pretty quick read, but it's dense and it's got a lot of good stuff in it. So now, now that you kind of know what Paul is trying to tackle, I want to read these, uh, these three verses. And I want to give you a little background and then tell you a story. All right, so here we go. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you are heirs, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All right, now, something about Paul. Paul was brought up as, as a Jewish man, and he was trained as a rabbi by the most famous and strict rabbi of his day. His name is Gamaliel. And um, when Paul is, says something that alludes to the Old Testament, you can assume that there's, there's some person that he's taking this example from. So he says that if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. So this is how the Bible fits together. Everybody turn backwards with me. First, go to, go to Genesis, all right? Go with me to Genesis 15. We're going to camp out there for a bit. Um, and I'm going to, Abby, will you put Genesis 12 on the screen for me right now? All right. I don't, you, you can go here if you want to. But in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is one of the first times we hear the word covenant in the Bible. And so this is probably one of the first things Paul is thinking of as he's telling these Galatians this. All right. So um, about 3000 years ago from from where we are now, there was a guy named Abram who was living in Mesopotamia. He started out in the city of Ur, which is in Kuwait. And then uh, he, he was called out of there and he went to another place called Haran. And then they, they stayed there for a while. And while he was in Haran, uh, God came to this pagan guy named Abram. And this is what he says. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who honors you. I will curse and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so God is, you know, he's he's going after someone. Someone who's not part of his family. Someone who's probably not pursuing him. He's, he's, he's pursuing another religion altogether. And he, and he brings him to a place where he can say this to his face. And you can imagine how shocking that must have been the first time. We don't know how it happened. Maybe he was walking down the street. Maybe he was hanging out with his dad. In fact, they, households lived together, so they lived in the same place. We don't know. But all we know is God comes to him and says... I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Now, when he did this, scholars tell us that Abram was in his 50s. His wife couldn't have babies. So, that's pretty amazing. 
that he would say that. You just, can you imagine, guys? You got this voice coming out of nowhere. You're 55 years old. Your wife's never been able to have a baby. It's been a struggle. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. All the nations on earth will be blessed in you. Okay. I mean, uh, huh? I don't even know who you are. But, but Abram was a great man of faith. So he followed and he did what he asked. Now, after this, God takes Abram. If you read Genesis chapters 1, I'm sorry, Genesis chapters 12 through 15, Abram has some adventures. He has some mistakes. He does some things that would make, I mean, really, make your hair stand on end to think about some of the things that this guy did. And then other things were amazing, great, faithful stuff. And years later, he's walked this path, and God has made him into a more of a faithful person. And God has introduced himself more intimately and thoroughly. And Abram is um, uh, now in his 70s, probably 75, 76 years old. Um, and God has still not given him even one kid, much less an entire nation. Right, he's old, and he's thinking, what is going on here? God, I do not know why you gave me this promise, and you're not fulfilling it, and I need some assurance. All right, and that's where we are in Genesis 15. Because Abram was God's child. He was his kid. And so God, just like a good father, has to give reassurances. Do you have to do that, moms and dads? Does this ever happen to you? You say, we're going to do something. It's a surprise. And so you get all your kids dressed and you take them out of the house. And then you get peppered with questions. When are we going to get there? What are we going to do? I'm hungry. Where's the bathroom? And you have to stop. You know, every five seconds and go, just wait. I promise. It'll be great when you get there. And, and the kid just doesn't get it. And this is Abram. He's 75 years old. But he's, he's like a child, just like we are. We have this problem too. So God, God just like a good daddy... Wants to give him assurances. And God is culturally relevant, even though we may not think so. He is. And so God uses something that Abram was intimately um, familiar with. He used a covenant. All right. Now, the only covenant that we know about right now that we use on a regular basis is marriage. Right. So you stand up and you give promises and you exchange tokens like rings and you have a ceremony and they have a big party afterwards and promises are exchanged and, you know, it's till death do us part. So when you biblically think, speaking and historically speaking, if you look at it, what a covenant is, it's a life and death agreement. It's agreement that says, I keep this promise until I die or until you die and then you're freed from the covenant. And this is an ancient Near Eastern custom that we're going to see in this one. Here's what they did. Picture, please. Can you see that a little bit? If you can't, I'll, I'll describe it. All right, here's what they do. So you've got two parties together. Usually they're like chieftains or kings or something. And they would be having a big argument or they would have some, they want to prevent a big argument between them, a territorial dispute. So what they would do is they would come together and they would negotiate. And they would negotiate over the terms of their covenant agreement. And so one side would say, okay, um, I promise that I will do this and this and this. And I promise that I will allow you to do these other things. And then we're going to promise to keep this covenant until we die. And so then what they would do is they would take sacrificial animals. Usually there was somewhere around four or five of them. And they would cut them in half. Just like that. And they would take the halves and they would spread them apart about as wide as two people would need to walk shoulder to shoulder between these, these dead animals. Blood all over the path in between. So it's a cow, a goat, a sheep, and usually two birds of some sort. 
And then they would array them in like a, an aisle, kind of like the aisle that you see here. Just wide enough to walk between. After they did this, they'd go back to their covenant agreement and they would say, all right, if I, it, and they'd look at each other, standing next to each other at the beginning of this aisle. And they'd look at each other in the eye and they would say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, see these animals? You can do that to me. This is heavy. This is serious. This is real life and death. That if they don't keep their side of the bargain, someone's going to come and cut them in half. Or maybe all of their family. A war might start even. So God wants to give Abram assurance. He wants to give him a picture of how serious he is about blessing him and about loving him and about keeping his promises. And so God takes this, this ancient Middle Eastern idea that you can find in all kinds of Middle Eastern literature, not just the Bible. And he says, all right, let's make a covenant. In fact, the, the ancient word, the way they would put it in the Bible is they cut a covenant. So it's, it's, it's even in the language of it. You don't say make a covenant. You say we're going to cut a covenant. And, and it, it conjures up that picture of what you're about to do. All right, got context. Genesis 15.1, follow along with me. He says, after these things, and that's a really great story. You should read it. I'm not going to, but it's a good one. Um, the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He said, fear not. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and, there, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. All right, just a quick aside. If a lot of times in this culture, if you didn't have a kid of your own, then a trusted household servant or a slave would be adopted, and they would become your heir. All right, the person who would inherit all you have to give when you die. Okay, so moving on. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is amazing because, again, remember, Abram, is, he's 75 years old and his wife is pretty close to that age as well. And he said, and, and he, Abram, believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. All right. So this is this is another thing. You'll see this over and over and over again in the Bible. He, Abram, believes he, God, and he, God, counts belief. Trust as keeping every single rule God will ever make. All he had to do was trust. Verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? Now comes the covenant ceremony. So just like us, Abram, he needs assurance. He, he's old. His wife is old. He's still human. He's it's been a long time since this, this promise is given. So, Abram, his co- God, his covenant daddy, says, here you go. I'm going to show you how serious I am. And he gave him a com- familiar cultural reference. Let's read how God does it now that you know the reference that he's using. So first, they sacrificed animals. They cut them in half. They laid them on the aisle to be walked. And he said, verse 9, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Can I have the picture again? So, Abram does this for God. He sets this whole thing up. 
And it's probably in the middle of the day at this point because it said, verse 11, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham had to drive them away. So he had to sit here for a while with this bloody mess in front of him. And he's going, what are you doing? And I, I know what's coming, but okay, God. Verse 12, promises. And the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Often in, in, in the Bible, you'll see pictures of God or angels or his messengers. And everyone is scared to death. And the first thing I have to say, what's the first thing they always have to say when angels or God or someone presents himself to a person? Don't be afraid. All right. So this is scary. This great black darkness comes down. And Abram, I mean, you can imagine, he's probably terrified. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites, the people who live in that land, is not yet complete. All right. So these promises are in addition to the ones he's already given of making him a great nation and making him a blessing. Notice, does God ask Abram to do anything? No. At least not overtly. You might find a little bit of a command in, in, the, in the statement, you're going to be a blessing. Okay, that's, there's a little something Abram can do for that. He could choose not to as well. But that's it. That's the only even sort of command you got here. The rest of it is God said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to make sure this happens, and then, oh yeah, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Verse 17. God assumes responsibility for not keeping the covenant. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. All right. Now, I looked this up because this was puzzling to me. Because the picture in my mind, you know, the 21st century man is like, you know, some sort of little homemade backyard oven that you make fires in that you can throw a few sticks from your yard in. Uh, or maybe, you know, a torch. You know, you got pictures from movies, these long sticks with, you know, pitch on the end and people walk around with them, usually chasing a monster or something, right? Uh, so I'm, I was trying to figure out what on earth is this? And I found out that's basically what it is. They had these pots to carry around on, on the ends of chains and they had to carry a, they used them like as lamps. All right, but they were really large, and you could put them down, and they would, they would light a significant area. And it was actually a torch. But, when, but I looked further, and I discovered that a lot of biblical scholars, when they, they pointed out that when you see fire in the Old Testament, especially a fire that's doing something like leading, say with the Exodus, you know, there was a pillar of fire that led the children of Israel around, that that's a symbol for the angel of the Lord. And these same scholars pointed out that the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Think about that for a second, okay? I'm going to read on. I want you to just keep that in your mind. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So, the difference... What's the difference between the covenant ceremony that I talked about at the beginning and the covenant ceremony you read about in the Bible? 
Here's the difference. Abram is in a trance sitting off to the side. God the Son walks the bloody path alone between the animals. Alone. All right? There's none of this at the beginning. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do this. And if I don't do this, then you can cut me in half, and then the other guy does it too. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and you can cut me in half. The only person who stands in front of that and says, I'm going to keep the covenant is God. That's it. He's the only person. Abram is off to the side. Now, 2,000 years ago, three, uh, you know, 1,000 years after this, more than that, Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to live on earth. But the plan was set in motion far before that. Look at the Old Testament. Look at it closely. Look at passages like this. You'll see Jesus enacting, foreshadowing his promise to you and to I, to you and to me, before Jesus came. And he looks at Abram and he says, I'm going to keep this covenant. Why did he do that? Why not make Abram walk with him? I mean, all he did was say, oh yeah, be a blessing. That's the only requirement. Well, I think it's because we fail at even that. And Abram did too. Read Abram's story. There's one story. He goes to the Egyptians. His wife is gorgeous, apparently. And he's afraid they're going to kill him for his wife. So he pretends his sister sends her to the Pharaoh's harem. I don't think that's being a blessing to you. It's not being a blessing to Sarah, for sure. All right. What ends up happening to Pharaoh, though, is God gets angry with the Pharaoh's household and makes all the women not be able to have babies. And so then, you know, there's, there's also God's wrath poured out on the Pharaoh. Is Abram being a blessing? No. God, actually, he does the same thing with the king of the Philistines, too. Exactly the same thing. About five years later. There's, there's several instances where you go, Abram, what are you doing? You're supposed to be a blessing. Even small stuff. This, then there's big stuff like this. He looks at you and I that way, too. You know, we can't do it. The Old Testament is, is ample proof that people can't do it. We can't be a blessing. At least not thoroughly the way God wants. So we're like kids. When you first moved to China, I bet a lot of you were like me and you wanted to go see the sights, right? So my kids were two, four, and six when we moved here. And I am a history buff and I like to tour. And so we dragged those poor little children all over Beijing to see all these things. And my son Bennett was two years old, and he could barely talk when we got here. And he, every time we would go someplace where it required you know, a lot of walking, he'd do this. Hold you. Hold you. All right. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a literalist, and I'm a smart aleck. And so I would go, okay. And I'd, you know, right all over him like that. And, you know, he'd try to hold me, but he couldn't do it. You know, if I'd really done that, though, if I'd really tried to make Bennett hold me, I would have squashed the poor kid and he would have broken his legs. We're like that. That's Abram. Abram is, is in this, this situation. He's like, I, you know, God, you said I'm getting kids. When are you going to bring me some kids so that you can fulfill this promise? And then Abram's, you know, God, it's like he's going to hold you, hold you. And God says, all right, well, just me, here's some assurance. All right. It's this is this is us. We you know, God is asking us to do something that we can only do with his help. We can we can't do it. He's got to work it for us. Um, God knows 
And so he gives Abram this picture. It's a bloody picture, but he wants him to remember who this is. It's, and it's one of the most beautiful pictures of fatherhood in the whole Bible, I think, despite the bloody nature, the graphic context. You see, God adopts people like you and, and like me into his family. But if he adopts um, and, you know, we're called heirs, according to Abram, Abraham, then there's an implication in this. And maybe it's an implication you never thought of before. The implication is, maybe we're not all children of God. At least not right now. Because God had to adopt Abram, remember? He had to, he had to go find him and invite him into the family. Actually, if you look at the Bible, you'll see all the way down through biblical history, there's two families right beside, right beside each other. There are the children of God, or the heirs according to the promise. But on the other hand, there are what the New Testament calls the children of wrath. And the sons of disobedience. And you can see this specifically outlined in two New Testament passages. The one is found in Romans 9, 8. I encourage you to go back and read the context because it's important. But it illustrates the point. Romans 9, 8 uh, says, This means that it's not the children of the flesh, meaning like uh, the children of you know, doing good works, following a ritual, that sort of thing, um, who are children of God, but the children of the promise as count, are counted as offspring. What promise? He's alluding to the promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, and then again in 17. Ephesians 2 is a little bit more clear even. Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, God says through Paul to us, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, here's how it stands. Each of us, me, you, everyone, when we're born, we don't sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Because it's in us. It's, it's there. We inherited it from our first father who sinned, Adam. It's there. You can't get rid of it. If you don't believe me, go downstairs right now to the, to the, to the nursery with the two-year-olds. Just watch for a second. You'll see it. It'll come out. All right? One little boy will walk over and snatch some from the other kid. Did anyone teach him to do that? No. You just know how to do it. It's, it's born into you. Your children, did you teach them to lie? I hope not. Did you teach them to lie? Please, please shake your head. <laughs> All right. But you remember the first time your kid lied? It was something fairly, you know, yeah, they weren't supposed to do it. It wasn't that bad, probably, but they weren't supposed to do it. And you walked up to your kid and said, did you do that? And they went, no. And they won't look at you. And you say, well, your brother said that you did. Uh, I, I didn't do it. So now they've got two lies. You know, number one is they didn't do it. Number two, the brother lied, basically. Okay? They're just building it one on top of the other. I didn't teach them to do that. 
but they know how to do it. It's just there. It's in us. So, if I only, if I only gave you the picture of my son Bennett going, hold you, I wouldn't give you the whole picture because the picture is much worse than that. Yes, we are children. Yes, we need reassurance. But we're also wired to be sinful and God is, he's removing that with the Holy Spirit. Um, we're covenant rebels. Now, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, here's what you see. God makes this promise about Abram's family, and here's what he's, and he, but he already knows what they're going to do. Let me give you an example. For example, Abram knows all of the descendants who will be Israelites in the Old Testament. For example, he says, I know about Jephthah. Jephthah is in the book of Judges, and Jephthah is a leader of an army, and he says, he says to God before he goes to the army, God, if you give me victory in battle, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my front door when I get home. That's not a smart promise, just in case you don't know, all right? Because the first person who comes out of the front door is his daughter. So then he's got a terrible decision to make. Am I going to sacrifice my daughter to God? God doesn't like human sacrifice, but I gave my word. Or am I going to not do it and not keep my word and everybody will know that and I'm going to be a liar? So he kills his daughter. But God is looking forward in history at this covenant ceremony. He's saying, I'm going to bless him. He's part of your family. My covenant's with him. What about Samson? Samson is actually listed in Hebrews as one of the heroes of the faith. But if you read the story of Samson, you wonder why. All right? He's, he's obnoxious. He's, he's a bully. And he's devious. And he sleeps around all the time. He's, he's not your, I mean, Sunday school heroes. Do you notice the, 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 the tales we tell our kids in Sunday school about Samson? It's really only like one that I can think of. It's the last one where he, you know, brings down the temple and conquers the Philistines. That's it. But you don't hear about all the stuff that led up to that. Why? You don't want to tell your kids that story. It's gross. And, you know, he's, he's nasty and he's a bad person. But God is graceful. Somewhere along the line, the Bible didn't choose to tell this, but I assume somewhere God is working on him and drawing that faith out of him. What about this one guy? David. We do read a lot of good things about David in the Bible. But there's a lot of bad stuff about him, too. I mean, he's, isn't, he, isn't he the guy who um, you know, marries this... this um, he he's doesn't go to war. He's looking out in the city. He sees this lady who's naked on top of, his, on top of her roof. He's like, wow. Has his men bring her to the house. They do what people do. You know what I'm saying? And then he can't get the husband to, to divorce her or, or to go sleep with her so he can cover up the pregnancy that happens. And then, so he's the leader of the army, so he puts this guy in the front lines and he gets killed. He did it on purpose. And then he takes her as his wife. Covenant ceremony. God's looking down through history and he's saying, David, I'm going to adopt you. What about Solomon? Solomon who had 500 concubines who eventually sort of, you know, started idolatry again in Israel toward the end of his life. God looks down through history and says, Solomon, I'm going to adopt him. I love him. He knew about every king, every heinous act. He knew about all the idolatry. He, he saw all of it. 
God is not walking into this love blind. God's love is not blind at all. God even looked far down enough to see Saul slash Paul, who was one of the most biggest religious hypocrites who ever lived, who was awesome. He memorized the entire first five books of the Bible. He was advancing in his, in his, in his way in the, Jew, in, the, in the Jewish religion. And he's so, so zealous that he goes around and he arrests and has killed the first, the first Christians. By, by the hundreds. And what does God do? Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and says, What are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? Turns his whole life around. Sends him to the Gentiles as a missionary. God, and back in this time, with Abram, is looking down through history saying, Saul, murderer, hypocrite. I want him. He's mine. I love him. He knew all of that. He looked at me. I was a church-going kid. I was in church every Sunday and every Wednesday, morning and night. I was the leader of my youth group, and I wasn't even a Christian. And I, was, I was partying on the weekend, and I was taking his, his name in vain and doing all kinds of stuff that I should never have done. I didn't even know I wasn't a Christian. I was just going to church, doing the thing my parents said I should do. And God looks at me, and he says, I love that guy. I, wanna, he's, I don't care if he's a hypocrite. I love him. He looks at, this, at me when I'm in college. I'm a Christian now, and I'm a leader in a campus ministry. But I'm desperately addicted to pornography, and I don't want anyone to know. And I'm hiding it, living a kind of a double life. And God looks at me, and he says, I love him. Bring him into the family. He looks at me today. I am an angry and impatient father. And there are a lot of days that I, I just want to kick myself for some of the things I say or the, or the faces I make. But he adopted me. God adopted Abram, a child of wrath, a son of disobedience. And he adopted everyone who would ever put their trust in Jesus to be in their family. And it doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from, what you didn't do. It doesn't matter about the ritual or the confirmation or the baby dedication and all this. All this is good things. They're good things. It doesn't matter how bad you were either. It doesn't matter that you hated God. He adopted you. And it was expensive. I was asking some friends the other day about adoption here in China because I was so curious. And so I, I gathered a few bits of information. It's, it's pretty expensive. It's too expensive for me, I think. Um, you have to have a net worth of $80,000 U.S. Um, then you, you have to pay some pretty big fees several times, lots of paperwork. Uh, there are travel expenses if the child is not here. And you go to another part of China to visit them, to have some interviews with the right officials. All costs money. Then if you're adopting a child who has some sort of physical deformity or something that you wouldn't normally want in a child, you pay for them to that get repaired. All that. That takes a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of dedication for someone to do that. And that's love. They don't know this kid. That You don't even get to meet them pretty much until pretty close to the end. But you're looking out and there's a name and you're saying, I love that person and I'm going to pay this price for them. And God does the same thing with a covenant ceremony, even further back than that. God is looking down through history and he's saying, Jason Keel, 
I, I, know, I know the name. He's not born yet. I'm going to make him my, fam- my family, and I'm going to do all the steps to bring him in, and he doesn't have to do a thing. And he's going to be a blessing because I'm going to make sure that happens. And that's amazing. Think about that for just a second. Just take 10, 15 seconds and just soak that in. That's who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, he's extending that, that invitation to you today. And that could have been enough, right? He could have adopted us in as adopted children, right? The kids who live in your house, you feed them, you clothe them, you love them, but maybe not as much as the other one. Because he could have done that. Because Jesus is his other son. He's perfect, right? He's the worst older brother you could ever have. You think about that. Jesus' brother James wrote the book of the Bible. Imagine what it would be like to be in you know, Jesus' house, being Jesus' little brother. It would suck. I mean, it would be, it would be terrible. Because you'd go, you know, your parents, you, yeah, yeah, how could Joseph and Mary not say, well, why can't you be like Jesus? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, ho- I hope they didn't. And they sound like really nice, godly parents. So maybe they didn't. I don't know. But, you know, it, it would be a big temptation if you had a perfect child who never sinned. To not go to little James, go, James, come on. Or, Jesus, can you give James a few pointers here? Or something. That would have been horrible. But, and it'd be easy for James or the rest of us to be second-class citizens in that house. But that is not what Paul is telling us. In, in, in Galatians 3.29, looking at it again, God says, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. An heir is a firstborn son. An heir is the person who gets everything when the dad passes it on. So not only are you adopted into this amazing family, you are not a second-class child. You're an heir. You get it all. And what did they have to do to pay for that, to make sure that happened? Jesus walked the bloody path. He did it as a glowing fire pot thousands of years ago. And 2,000 years ago, he walked a bloody path from the the local prison in in Jerusalem, carried across part of the way after being beaten bloody with a cat of nine tails 39 times. You you better believe there was a trail of blood. Climbed up the side of that hill and was nailed to a cross and stayed on there the better part of a day. And while he was on there, it wasn't just the physical... While he was on there, there was a three-hour period of darkness where theologians tell us that hell visited Jesus right there. Every single sin you would ever commit squashed into three hours of pure anger and hate and justice. And that's how you got adopted. It makes, makes the process that we go through seem paltry, doesn't it? And he made you his heirs. You get it all. Now, here's the thing. Just like Abram, you can't keep the covenant. I can't keep the covenant. Some days I'm okay. Some days I just blow it. But just like Jesus, just like for Abram, Jesus bears the penalty for us. Just like Abram and his kin, we get the benefits Those without faith in Jesus are children of wrath, as was Abram, and as was I. 
before God invited me into his covenant. And the invitation to join God's covenant family goes out to every single one of you. He wants you to be in his family. If you feel him stirring in your heart right now, it's him speaking to you. It's him giving that invitation. So can I uh, just maybe ask you to bow your heads? Um, and I want you to just be you know, meditating on what, what's been said, what's been read today. Uh, I want to pray. Can I ask the music folks to come back up while I do that? And if you know for a fact that you're, you're not a member of God's covenant family through Jesus, um, and, and you don't know how and all the stuff that I've been saying is kind of really new to you and you just need to ask questions to take it in, there'll be elders up here after the service who can talk to you about that. There'll also be people out in the, in the area out here with the tables and stuff who can talk to you as well. So can I pray and then they're going to sing a song. We'll be done.